so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by David Mathis to talk about his new book, Workers for Your Joy, The Call of Christ on Christian Leaders from Crossway. Today, we talk about the nature of Christian leadership and the proper role of authority in the local church. David serves as a senior teacher and executive editor at Desiring God, as well as a pastor at Cities Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. He also serves as an adjunct professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis. He's the author of several books, including Habits of Grace, Enjoying Jesus Through the Spiritual Disciplines. And now let's join our conversation. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us here on the Digital Public Square podcast today. One of the things I was really excited about having this book specifically is it came out last year and it was received really well. It was on a number of year-end lists and things. But one of the things that you're addressing here is kind of the dearth of leadership um, and helping us to think wisely about what biblical leadership is, specifically pastoral ministry and what that looks like. Because one of the things that I've noticed, and you kind of open your book about this, is the way that often our society is very cynical toward leadership and towards authority, and that the church really isn't immune to this. So I wanted to hear a little bit of the background on why you wanted to write a book like this and kind of what you hope listeners will take away from it. Jason, actually, this this is a strange book. I haven't had another project quite like this. Um, in some ways, I've been working on this for 10 years. So this was not a COVID project or a post-COVID project or a post-rise and fall project. It was back in 2012 when we were getting Bethlehem College and Seminary going here in Minneapolis as it went from being TBI, the Bethlehem Institute, to a full college and seminary. They asked if I would do one of the courses. And so I went to talk with Tom Steller, who was dean at the time, and I had these delusions of grandeur that maybe they want me to teach ST or Christology or the Epistle to the Hebrews. And they said, well, we have an eldership class we'd like for you to do. it." <laughs> and uh, I was like, well, that's not what I have dreamed of writing on or teaching or instructing. I don't think I'm any expert in that. I, mean, I, I was an elder at the time. I became an elder back in 2009. And uh, so I led the eldership class. And year after year, 
I would try to introduce to that class real practical issues that I thought the guys needed in the, in the course of their seminary training to get ready for on the ground ministry. And so that class led to reorganizing, to drawing in different texts, to writing articles, to doing sermons. And uh, maybe, maybe it was six or seven years ago, first having the thought of bringing it together under the banner of being workers for your joy. That's the second Corinthians uh, chapter one, verse 24. We can talk about that later on if you'd like. And under that banner, bringing it together and then structuring it according to the elder qualifications, which amazingly get at the practical things that, that guys need to study and think about before going into the ministry. So it's been a long time in coming. And during that time, I have observed the cynicism grow. <laughs> and, you know, it, it hit new levels uh, during COVID and that disorientation. And then all the debates and controversies and differences of opinion in 2016 and beyond then. So it, it, it's at a new level, a, a new uh, feverish level in recent years. But this project in trying to bring together in the 21st century an expression of the elder qualifications and how that relates to daily ministry on the ground, uh, that's been some time in coming. Yeah, that's one of the things that I, I really love about the book and I found really interesting is how you write about how we're designed to be led. I think sometimes we kind of have this not only cynical approach, but kind of we have this kind of revulsion against being led and feeling like there are people in authority over us. Um, and I think part of that is due to kind of the culture we inhabit. Um, I always talk to my students that you're not just doing ministry in a vacuum, you're doing ministry in real life in a real society. And a lot of the individualism of our day, a lot of the moral autonomy of our day is directly influencing our people because it's the culture in which we all inhabit. It's also influencing how we think about leadership. But you wisely point out that we're designed to be led and to be under the authority of others, specifically God's leadership. That also extends to the local church. So I want to see if you can help us to understand a little bit of the kind of the cultural moment in which we inhabit, especially in terms of leadership. What are some of the, the kind of pull, some of the temptations that we're facing? And how does this kind of help? How does a book like this help to reorient us to a biblical vision of leadership today? So I'm, I'm not actually a huge fan of the cultural moment language, because I usually think these things are fed by decades and centuries, and it's typically not a moment. Uh, I, I think sometimes it, there's almost a, a nearsightedness of like, oh, this moment, this moment. It's like, well, people have been pretending and doing that sort of thing for a long time. You know, this election, the most important one of our lifetime. So I, to take a step back and kind of see the, the era in which we're living or the generation, uh, the various complexities, I mean, there are going to be certain traits of the biblical composite of a leader that fit with that in various generations and others that do so less. And so the kind of leadership that we might expect in the 1950s, 1960s, and then in the 21st century may be different with a kind of generational turnover as well. So I think by going back to, as we listen to those things, you know, insights from the business world or from this sector of society, to come back to have our feet tethered to the biblical qualifications, which once you start to see them, are, are, are very significant. So many of us have encountered them as a quick list of items in 1 Timothy 3. So it's a list of, list of 15 things, and they go by really quick. Self-control, uh, sober-mindedness, one-woman man, you know, not greedy for filthy gain. Like They go by very fast. But to linger over those and say, it's not like Paul has seven verses here on leadership. There's a lot to say across the canon on leadership. So 
when he mentions very quickly with a single word, self-control, there's a massive theology of self-control in the New Testament. So to be able to trace out those virtues, and it's interesting to see how some of those virtues uh, fit better in certain decades or generations than others do. And uh, to, to go back to have that biblical standard will help us pick up some. So, for, for instance, most of my life, this is a, a really relevant one recently, most of my life I have read over very quickly that elder qualification of not quarrelsome. Like, ah, whatever, you know, in the, maybe in the first century or whatever. <laughs> but in the last few years, I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is in the qualifications for leadership. This is something that we should consider when we're considering a pastoral candidate, somebody for the ministry, our own ministries, as those who would read these qualifications to do regular checkups on ourselves. An elder in the local church is to be not quarrelsome. And that's a very important thing to consider that, that comes into a fresh light in the last few years, as opposed to, say, maybe what I was aware of as a teenager or 20-something yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating to me as well as a lot of the qualifications for elders are also just basic Christian ethics uh, for all of us. Obviously, we're called to a higher standard, and obviously there's authority and things like that, and there's some specifics. But even as things like self-control, uh, gentleness, a lot of those are just fruits of the Spirit and what it looks like to be a New Testament believer um, and filled with the Holy Spirit. That gets into a very important aspect of what it means to be a leader in the church, the exemplary function. So what Christ expects of his leaders is not a level above the flock, like not world-class intellect or oratory or executive skills. We want normal, healthy Christians. <laughs> it's a very modest standard, like self-controlled, sober-minded, not a drunkard. Now, now, there is an expectation that a pastor elder be a teacher in a way that we may not expect of all people in the congregation. And then, you know, we say not a recent convert. And so obviously if somebody has just come to Christian faith, they can't be not a recent convert. But what not a recent convert means is not arrogant. We want that of every Christian. So the elder qualifications are, in one sense, very modest. Don Carson talks about they're remarkable for being unremarkable. <laughs> this is just, as you said, this is normal, healthy Christianity which needs to be embodied and showcased in the leadership because we want the whole church to grow up into that. And so it's, it's not actually that leaders are held to a higher standard, but they're just more strictly held to the standard of the whole church. Yeah. I think that's a really important point because one of the things that I've noticed, especially in the classroom, so one of the things I teach is worldview, philosophy, and ethics. And as I have a lot of students who are aspiring to pastoral ministry, uh, a book like this, I think, can be a really helpful tool for them. But it's not just for them. You say you kind of have two audiences in mind, those who are currently in leadership or aspiring to leadership, as well as those who don't really aspire to church leadership, but want to constitute a healthy body, a healthy church culture um, of not only keeping pastors accountable, but also being able to love on them and care for them. But getting back to that first group, I wanted to see... What were some of the kind of hopes and takeaways, even from that early class that you were teaching there at Bethlehem, what were some of the things that you wanted these aspiring church leaders to kind of take away from? Any kind of main themes or main ideas? Oh, man, a huge one has been, continues to be plurality. So it, it's very easy to say, and we emphasize it, and we give a few texts and, and move on. But to get, to get into the real dynamics of what it means to not do 
ministry as a lone ranger or as an individual, but like to do ministry as a team. So I, I included a, an appendix in the book about the dynamics of team ministry, various team dynamics. I think that's very important because so many problems, you know, we hear this, that the main reasons missionaries come home from the field is because of the team dynamics, because of their teammates, you know, disagreements, problems with their teammates. And so uh, many of us, myself, I don't know about you, Jason, I don't know about others, but maybe grew up in context where the thought of ministry was he's the preacher, it's his church. There's almost this subtle loner uh, model of ministry that some of us thought, oh, as I'm going into ministry, as I'm going to seminary to train, we kind of were training to be the guy, you know, be the big man, be the pastor. And yet, as you look to the New Testament over and over again, every local church situation, it's a team of pastors. You know, there's there's one person in the New Testament who gets the glory of singular leadership. It's Jesus. <laughs> and even the apostles underneath him are plural. So uh, it, it's very significant that under Christ, we would have this plurality in our local church. Now, let me say, just to give the, the, the concession, I'm sure that there's guys listening in various contexts, whatever the context, whether it's small church, whether it's rural, whatever it would be, maybe they are in a lone ministry situation and there's nothing they can do about it. What, whatever the context and background that's gone into that, I don't think they're in sin to be in a situation where they're the lone pastor, elder, officer in their church. However, it might be sin if you stay that way happily and don't pray and don't uh, act toward trying to raise up other leaders. Because the New Testament is clear about the ideal of a plurality of leaders. And so that's one thing that we've emphasized again and again in the class. But in particular, talking through some of those practical dynamics of then what it means to do leadership on the ground. And you know what? You need those virtues and graces of the elder qualifications, not only to deal with the congregants, but to deal with each other. <laughs> I want to drill down a little bit on one of the things you said. We'll get, I want to kind of dig into obviously the main theme and kind of uh, the way that you organize the book. But you said something there that I was really glad you talked about was kind of as especially the small church pastor or the bivocational pastor. Um, one of the things here at the ERLC that we know is that many of our churches, especially in the Southern Baptist Convention, are under 100 people. That's actually the majority of our churches. And often these churches, you have pastors who are bivocational, meaning they have multiple jobs. They they work one job most of the time or even full-time and then pastor the church either on the side or split. Um, and they can be under some really unique pressures. Um, and so when they're thinking about na issues, navigating kind of the cultural issues of the day or whether it's just the basics of ministry, um, you mentioned kind of that plurality aspect. I want to see if you could play that out a little bit um, in terms of what advice would you have for some of those bivocational pastors? I know you said, obviously, not to kind of stick in those ways. Obviously, it may be a reality now, but you pray for a plurality of elders or plurality of leadership. What are some of the things that you might encourage those type of pastors who want the biblical vision, but feel kind of stuck or even feel like there's just no way we can bring on another leader because I'm not even uh, on staff full time. Um, you know, we're struggling to kind of make ends meet and keep the lights on. Uh, what are some of the encouragement that you might give to those bivocational pastors? I, I would say one thing is none of us pass, none of us pastor ideal churches. So uh, you could you could summarize ministry as 
patiently seeking to move your church toward those New Testament ideals. And none of us, you know, we don't reach those. As as one of them seems to come into fruition, we find that we have lost traction in another. So I want to put it within the framework of the New Testament ideal is plural, local church leadership. And for us to hold that in the constellation of things that we want to pastor a church toward. So if you're in a bivocational or a solo situation, I wouldn't want to heap scorn or criticism on you immediately, but just get on the radar. And a lot of these guys know this, that they want help. So in particular, the guys that I want to push in on are the guys who maybe have the preference of being on their own. They want to be king of the castle. They maybe been in relationships in the past and they don't enjoy the the hardness of relationships. Relationships in a team are more difficult and they're more effective for the good of the church. And there may be a self-interest or a selfishness in a pastor just saying, you know what? I'd prefer to do this alone. And I really want to push on those guys in a different way than of, of the guy who's saying, you know, I'm trying to move my church to a bunch of ideals and this is one of them. I think a first really good tangible step in that situation, having identified that ideal, is to pray about it. I don't want to rush guys into that. Pray about that possibility. Develop eyes for those in your congregation who may have those leadership uh, capabilities and maybe already have that. And I think a, a really specific thing you can say, because in the New Testament, the reality of teaching and the office of elder largely overlap, that that is a very... Uh, helpful thing to look for, like to say, when you're not preaching, who is? Or if you were, if there is there someone in your congregation you would trust to teach the Sunday school class? You may already see guys operating in that. And so knowing that at the heart of the office is teaching, again, not world-class oratory or somebody good enough to wow the world on a podcast, but just normal, healthy, biblically faithful teaching, that would be a significant thing to look for And then to think, all right, uh, are there some ways that this person with some teaching possibilities needs some particular investment or some particular focus on other areas of their life so that they fit this composite of a healthy leader? And a, a few meetings, a few intentional meetings could go a long way along the lines of, I love 2 Timothy 2.2, where Paul speaks to Timothy in the context of Ephesus and says, Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So in the context of teaching and leading a whole flock, there's room to pray for, look for, and have a few particular meetings uh, with some guys that we think might be able to join us in the work of teaching and governing the flock. You kind of zoomed back out to get us 100,000 feet. We kind of drilled in deep there. Uh, one of the questions I wanted to kind of address is kind of this theme. So it's workers for your joy. I mean, you kind of talk about the nature of Christian leadership is for the joy of the church, and you structure it around some key themes, namely humility, wholeness, and uh, honorability. What is the significance of that paradigm? Obviously, I think you're writing in the midst. There are other pastoral leadership books and kind of have, what's unique about this and the way that you're kind of approaching it and framing it up? Well, I mean, this discovery of the the decade of doing this class with guys at Bethlehem College and Seminary, uh, I, I really wanted to help these guys on uh, bringing to bear to the class the practical things it would be good for them to know about, think about beforehand before getting into ministry situations. And that discovery that as I sought to structure the class around these practical flashpoints, the discovery that these things all seem to pair with one of the qualifications, like the relevancy of the qualifications just burst with new freshness. 
And so uh, that thought of wanting to expose the guys to those things, think in depth about those things. But then that's a long list. It, I count 15 in First Timothy 3. Uh, there's some extra ones there, maybe eight, another group of 15. You could put it together for 18 if you put it with Titus 1. You can look at 1 Peter 5, 2 Timothy 2, 23 to 26. There's some other passages where you can kind of bring in to have a, a composite of that New Testament leader. I thought it would be helpful to try to summarize those. And so in various ways over the years, I'm looking for three or four ways to kind of cut up the pie, so to speak. If you're putting all that, all those ingredients into the, the pie of the New Testament leader, how might we slice it in three pieces just to say what we're getting at? And uh, it helps if it's alliterative, <laughs> but uh, at least at least they all get to the H sound, even if they don't start with the letter H. So you are H. a good Baptist is what you're telling me. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And uh, so humbled, not just humble, but humbled, whole, and honorable uh, it is the ways that I've gotten at over the years of the leader's stance, his posture, so to speak, before his God. So there we talk about the calling. Uh, stewards are not innovators in the Christian church. They're creative, but stu- they're stewards, you know. And so uh, we talk about teaching in that first section. Sober-mindedness is a reflection of a mind being shaped by the Holy Spirit and by God's word, and then humility. So uh, under that that first rubric is how might we think about the leader, Coram Deo, before the face of God, and humbled was that that summary term. And then secondly, we often emphasize in Christian leadership about how it's it's more about character than about gifting. And that's right. But the other qualifications are only character, but the heart of them, there's a very much a, a character uh, part there. That's the integrity part or the wholeness that the man would be the, the same essential person in private as in public. And so there we talk about one woman man and being a, and managing the household well and self-control. Those, those are the kind of the integrity issues, money, alcohol, two more there. Then the last category is probably the most surprising uh, to most Christians. It's, it's the public nature of the office, you know, being respectable and well thought of by outsiders. People scratch their head with that. Like, what do you mean? Is the church, is the world going to pick the church's leaders? Well, no, not exactly, but this is a public office. And so how the man comports himself in public is important in, in an official public office. And so that's the, that's the honorable label there. So I, it, just for my own use, for the use of the class, I hope it's helpful for readers that when they come across a situation where they want a, a kind of summary of what are we getting at in the elder qualifications? What's the New Testament getting at? There's humble, the man before his God. There's whole, the man before those who know him best, you know, family, friends. And then there's the honorable nature of the office of the man, uh, which would be before the church and the wider world. Yeah. I really like the kind of concentric nature of that, kind of building out from the core between you and God and then to our families and then kind of to the wider public. And I think it's a really helpful way to remember and kind of frame it up. Um, one of the things that you mentioned, obviously, there are elder qualifications at stake here. And that's actually something that has been in recent years, surprisingly, in some ways, uh, amidst of a lot of uh, conversation and even controversy. 
Uh, we've also seen a lot of controversy over the last few years about the role of women in ministry and what roles they can serve in, and specifically questions of uh, female pastors even uh, throughout a number of denominations, and then even getting into questions about disqualification for ministry. And so obviously this is so much to unpack, but one of the things I wanted to see is if you could speak to how we can frame up some of those in light of the qualifications. Obviously, this isn't just a this isn't the entire list, but these are specifics uh, that these men are called to specifically as they're called into uh, pastoral ministry. This high calling. How do we kind of frame up some of the bigger controversy of the day, whether it's disqualification or the role of women in ministry, given some of the the confusion at times over the the these pastoral qualifications? At least to speak to the. The first there, I'm, I'm not sure about how, how close the connection is with the second necessarily or not, but to speak to the first in terms of, uh, you know, our various rise and fall stories or men who have been disqualified from ministry in very public contexts, there is something to be said here. And this is what I'm trying to do in the book is just to take the elder qualifications that Paul gives us on behalf of the risen Christ with utter seriousness. It's like, it's amazing. Like, they're there. <laughs> And if we if we thought of those not as just these quick throwaway things on the front end of an application, I, I get it. Like in these search processes for a pastor or interviewing a interviewing a potential elder, do we linger there? Do do we take this list seriously and not just spend a minute reading it and then go on to other things, terms that have been set by the business world or what's going to be effective, what's going to gather a big crowd, what's going to make this multi-site and, and mega church, but to think, all right. Let's trust the ancient wisdom here. Let's not move the ancient markers. Paul spent time writing each one of these words, and uh, we'd be good to think through the nature of them and take them seriously. And when we come across a man who uh, has a some glaring sense, or at least some discernible sense of uh, not meeting that qualification, we should we should pause on that. This is this is not they're there for a reason, and we would do well to think through them. I mean. Er, not arrogant in the time Titus list. That's very significant. I, if, if a man comes uh, for the office of elder for pastor, and everything else seems good as far as you can tell, but you just, uh, as, as a team of, of elders or a congregation, you have the sense of, ah, I, I got pause over that not arrogant issue. I would not say, let him grow into that in the office. <laughs> I would say, let Let's pause. Let's put it on hold. It, it, it may cause us to lead. It may lead to uh, bigger questions about what we're trying to do in the local church. Like, are we really trying to put on a show? Are we trying to gather as many as possible? Or uh, do we want to follow the guidelines we have from Jesus, from his apostles about the very nature of what a church is and what church leadership should be? Because the New Testament doesn't leave us in the dark over those things. We actually have a good deal about what Christian leaders should be. And I think in paying attention to that, not just as requisites on the front, but thinking about these are the very virtues that pastors and elders need to do their work. That, that that's a, has been a, a significant lesson for me in the course of these years of doing the class and of, of being a pastor and elder. These are not just requisites on the front end, hoops to jump through, that you need to have self-control enough to get into the office, and then it's no longer important. I mean, these are virtues to be true of you and growing, and they're kind of virtues that in operating in them, you're doing the work in a good, healthy manner that's building up the church and not just the pastor's own ego. 
I know in recent years, we've seen kind of a questions over the division between the office of a pastor and elder, and then the the function or the role. And that kind of plays itself out in a number of different ways. But one of the things I've always wondered, and part of this is just for my time in seminary and a number of different churches, um, many, many healthy churches, is that there was sometimes a sense that there were elder qualified men who either didn't have the ability to teach specifically or didn't feel called into that and felt like that's not something that they're really strong in, but yet were elder qualified on the other qualifications. So I wanted to see if you could help us to think through that a little bit. Is there a distinction between the office and then the role or function of a pastor? And then what do we do? How do we think through kind of elder qualifications for those who, and obviously it's the ability to teach. Maybe they have the ability, they don't love to do it. It's not maybe a strength of theirs, but how do you kind of judge that specific qualification admits kind of some of these larger kind of issues in terms of office and function? That's really good. Two really important questions. Both of them are significant. Uh, in training elders and in the book. On the one hand, I, I would want to paint a vision of that the elders are not the sum total of qualified men, ideally, in the church. Because the pastor elders as a team are to be exemplary, you want the whole congregation growing into those virtues. So the goal is that, in a sense, the whole congregation would be qualified. Now, I know we, we have one woman man and we have clarity as to the as to men being the teachers and governors in that role. But you, we want to be growing the whole congregation toward that composite of Christian virtue. Sober minded. I mean, are we okay to have non sober minded people in our church? Self controlled, not not greedy for filthy gain. Drunkards. We don't want to have drunkards in the church. So so all these attributes we want to be true of the whole church. So I think a healthy church is going to have many men who are qualified to be pastors and aren't pastors. I, I would not think of the the office of elder being a reward for some stage of spiritual maturity. It's like, oh, well, now Bob is self-controlled enough that he meets all the qualifications, so we must make him a pastor elder here. It's like, no, 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 no. It, that, it, that's, a, that's an office. It's a distinct thing from the spiritual maturity. So on the one hand, we want all the people to go to the spiritual maturity. And then among those spiritually mature men— we might think, who would help serve the needs of this church in this season? That might relate to how many elders you have. Somewhere between three and uh, 11 or 12 is probably the kind of healthy number for people interacting, knowing each other. Every new person you add to a team like that, you're adding, you know, multiplying the lines of correspondence, asymptotic. It's going up exponentially as to how things can get off, get off the tracks. So we're not seeking just to bring all the mature men in the church into the office of elder, but those who for a season would be willing to give themselves extra. That, to think of it in terms of this is not mainly, I mean, there is, uh, there's a good name in serving well, there's honor in serving well, and this is not, not mainly a reward. This is not an accomplishment. This is added service. Somebody saying, you know, other than being a husband and a father and doing my job, I'm going to give extra time. I'm doing less hobbies and pastimes because I'm giving extra time. I'm giving extra energy to doing this work. I'm serving the church, not myself, serving the church by doing that in this season and giving this extra time for three years, six years, or called to a career of doing that. So that would be the, the first, just in terms of the paradigm of wanting to move the whole church in that direction. As far as the teaching qualification, that's very significant. Paul puts that as the eighth 
of his 15 qualifications in First Timothy 3. So it's in the middle. Chiasm, you know. And it's the last, it's the culminating qualification in the Titus 1 list in verse 9. It is very significant. It's distinctive of the office. If you lay out the maps of pastor, elder, and deacon, it's the one that sticks out. And so if a man is elder qualified and he's willing to serve, and we want him to serve, but he's not deductive costs, he's not apt to teach, that's all right. We still got an office for him. It's called deacon. You know, Paul, we get that. That's set up. Um, and so uh, it's, that's not dishonorable to serve in the assisting office. That's a beautiful and wonderful thing. And it is important. Uh, that is a, a, a qualification of the, the pastoral elder office to be apt to teach. And if I could just lay it out in three parts, spend a lot of time on this over the years, trying to explain it to the guys. Uh, is, is this a more minimal thing? Is it more maximal? Because sometimes, uh, you know, candidates presented to the, the pastors of the church or the elders. It's like, you know, is he a teacher? And the response is, well, if you put a gun to his head and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, that's not what we're looking for in pastor teachers in the church. It's like, if this guy has to, he can teach. It's like, no, 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 no. no so so here, here's the way to, I try to explain it. One is he needs to be equipped to teach. There's some course of study here, whether it's seminary, whether it's some online curriculum, whether it's being discipled by an older man, whether he's an autodidact. And as you quiz him and, and ask him questions like this man has been educated, he's equipped. Uh, it, it is There is a kind of intentional equipping to be ready to teach the word as a faithful steward. So equipping is needed. That's the first E. The other one is eagerness. Then. He wants to do this. It's not the kind of guy you got to put a gun to his head so it'll teach. It's more like you got to put, put a gun to his head to get him to stop teaching. And even then he probably won't stop teaching. Because he feels this internal sense of, I, I, I want to teach. I process the word, the world this way. God made me this way. When I read God's word, when I think about things, I want to tell people, I'm, I want to teach. I'm eager to teach. And then the third one then would be effective. So equipped, eager, effective. The pastor teachers of the church as a group must be effective or eventually the wolves carry the day. So effectiveness is critical. Effectiveness is not the same thing as world-class entertainment. Um, that, you know, I, I resist the language of gifted communicator. He's a gifted communicator. That just, that just sounds to me like a way of talking, talking about somebody who's interesting on any subject, and he'd be great on YouTube. He'd be great selling used cars. Anything he does, he's a gifted communicator. That's not what we're looking for in the pastoral office. We're looking for someone who's effective at teaching Christ's word as part of a team, being a team of teachers to communicate Christ's word. So that effectiveness is important. That would be a kind of ability, but we got to, we got to view that in the context of that local church, which will be different in different settings. A, a smaller church, a more rural church will probably have different standards for what seems effective at teaching than a big church on Capitol Hill or in New York or in a large city. So that effectiveness is important. We want him to do it. He wants to do it. He's eager to do it. And then he's been equipped so that he's sound and faithful in that teaching. Yeah. I know one of the blessings of my job, specifically here at the RLC, um, is hearing from pastors. So it's kind of fun. We get phone calls all the time. We get emails all the time. Um, and then even when I'm out teaching and things like that, I'll have pastors come up. And it's it's interesting to me, especially in the last few years, some of the questions I'm getting asked 
Um, so I'm not being asked, and probably a lot of it due, due to my interest in research and things like that, but I'm not being asked about kind of some of the day-to-day ministry things. I'm being asked about big social issues, big ethical issues, uh, politics, um, social media, technology. And it's one of those things that I've noticed when I'm talking to these pastors often is that they're exhausted, um, just utterly exhausted, not only just from COVID, but even just the last five or 10 years of ministry have been difficult for a number of reasons, some personal, some kind of corporate. Um, but there, a lot of pastors are exhausted. Um, a lot of pastors feel overwhelmed, feel ill-equipped at times, feel like they're not uh, doing their jobs well, even if they are. And one of the things I wanted to ask you specifically is when pastors are feeling pulled in a thousand different directions, they're being asked to comment on things. And somehow if they don't comment on something publicly, that they're somehow complicit in whatever it is. What encouragement would you give to pastors that just feel burnt out, that feel overwhelmed? And many, even we've seen studies of many are leaving the ministry entirely. What kind of encouragement would you give to pastors and light of kind of this larger project um, who do feel kind of discouraged and downtrodden and kind of overwhelmed and anxious in this season? Yeah, you know, there's it's, there's a kind of uh, threading the needle, but fortunately it's a needle with a big eye. It's not a little tiny needle. You can thread this one. And on, on the one hand is uh, as a pastor, you're called to more than one thing. So even though the faithful teaching of the Bible and of the gospel is central. You are, you are called to more than just that. That's why pastors are called overseers as well. And why pastors need to be sober minded because there's, there's governing that needs to be done. There's leadership that needs to be done. There's, there's decisions for the congregation that need to be made. And Christ appointed that the teachers would be the ones who would lead in those decision making. So on the one hand, pastoral ministry is more than one thing. But on the other hand, it's not a thousand things. It does have teaching at its heart. And so I, I think for pastors to, to own that, you know, that, that's a, I, there is a generality in the pastoral ministry that I, I think typically healthy, healthy pastoral ministry is a kind of generalist ministry. However, there are some particularities for us to own that they can't be specified. I can't give you minutes. I can't give you exact guidelines. But for you to know, there's an asymmetry in your relationship uh, an asymmetry in your ministry between teaching and then trying to move to the margins to help counsel people. You know, uh, so often on these flashpoint cultural issues, which we need you, <laughs> Jason, we need, we need folks like you to help us pastors with these things. No, pastors don't need to be experts of these things. We need to be men of the word, know our Bibles well, and know our people well, and stand between those two worlds and be able to communicate the depth, the hope, the beauty of Jesus Christ and his gospel to our people and then get help from people at ERLC and other other places who are thinking about these ethical issues. One of the things that happened in COVID is our people had already made up their minds on certain issues. They weren't really asking for their pastor's input. They were asking for their pastor's blessing (laughs) or condoning So the algorithm had already shaped their view, and now they want their pastor to back them up because maybe they feel a little bit of guilt. Maybe they're uncertain, like, should I really be having this opinion about this politician or this policy? Should I really have gone this deep down the wormhole? And so they're pressuring their pastor to bless their sin or at least their imbalance. And I would encourage pastors, try to discern carefully when someone's coming and asking you for an opinion on a cultural issue, if they're not 
humbly asking your opinion in a private setting, but trying to pressure you or twist your arm to say stuff in public. I think it's great to have a radar go up in that situation. That, that Those kind of demands, however sneaky, however forthright, uh, that's not going to produce a healthy church. And by giving into it, you're going to feed it. It's going to get more. It's not going to go away by you giving into it a couple times. So I would say resist that sort of pressure, those, those sorts of demands to make these public statements about things that you are not an expert on and you don't need to be an expert on. You teach them the Bible with the little bit of growing, modest cultural awareness that you have and sleep well at night and do it as a team. That, that's a big part too in COVID. As much as possible, a lesson coming out, one great dynamic of teamwork is that the work many with many hands, there's light labor, with many shoulders, the weight's less. And we know it if you're carrying a trampoline or moving somebody in, carrying a big couch, you know, you get more shoulders in on that, it takes less of a toll. And so that's another benefit in that ideal scenario of doing ministry together as a team in local church. There's so much wisdom there. And I'll, I'll, I encourage listeners maybe to go back and listen to that section because I think that that is, there's so much wisdom there. And it's something that um, as I, I communicate with these pastors and engage them and love on them and hear from them, that's a, just a really wise word. But one of the things that we talked about kind of before we got on the podcast was some of our audience and many of our listeners don't aspire to pastoral ministry, whether they're not qualified or they don't feel leading into that. Their moms, their dads, their faithful members of their local church. And that was kind of the other audience you've had in mind. So we've talked a lot about two pastors or those aspiring to pastoral ministry. I wanted to see what kind of advice you would give to the church member. Um, obviously about not only in terms of the qualifications of elders, but also how to love and care for and to support their leaders in the local church. What kind of advice would you give to the average church member um, within their church about how they should look to leadership and interact with, or and kind of interact with leadership in their church? Great question. Uh, and, you know, again, you said average person. So I'm, I'm not assuming this applies to every listener. You may be in a, a peculiar situation this doesn't apply, but a, a general thing and then a very specific thing from a biblical text. The general thing is it's good for pastors to have people who know about the pastoral ministry. You know, so people who have read their Bible, understand what the calling is, understand what pastors are doing. There's a kind of accountability in that. I mean, there there is both explicit and implicit accountability. And often the implicit accountability can be so powerful. Where just by having, so for, so for instance, when you have peers in ministry, you're aware that they are processing life and the church and ministry in the same position you are. And it brings a kind of implicit accountability to all that you do just by having peers. And in the local church, when you have informed church members who aren't bossy or mean, they're just informed. They love the church. They love the Bible. They know what the pastor is supposed to do. When church members are informed, and participate in the process of the local church and the life of the local church, that provides really good accountability for pastors just to know that they're being seen, you know, that, that they're, they're part of this, that, that, that the congregation is engaged and is doing their part. And I would say, even in the giving of encouragement, what you're doing is you're engaging with the pastors to know that these people are leaning in. We're not just doing this show they are part of this. There's a community, there's a body. And as a pastor, to have your first and foremost identity as member of the flock. 
you know, rejoice not that the demons are subject to you in my name, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So there's, there's the general one. But by leaning in, congregants provide accountability for the pastor and a healthy church. Here's the specific one. I was, this, is, this is not in the book. It's been fresh. I've been thinking about it recently. Hope to write up something on it. I love Hebrews 13, 17, because it gives this two-part vision of leadership and the congregation's part. So let me read verse 17 of Hebrews 13, and then I'll just give you that congregant's part, since you asked about the, the average congregant. So obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So this is like a holy conspiracy here. So uh, three parts. The first part is you assume that the pastor got in it for the right reasons. He aspires to ministry. He's not in ministry because it pays well. A ton of other op- occupations pay so much better than pastoral ministry. He, he got into this because he really wanted to help people. He wanted to labor for people's joy. He aspires to the work. And so give your pastor that benefit of the doubt, your pastors that benefit of the doubt. And then the second part is, he says, let them do this with joy and not groaning. So it assumes the pastor's trying to do his work with joy. And then he says to the congregant, don't knock that train off the rails. You know, Don't get in the way of the pastor doing his work with joy for your good. So there are ways that congregants can love, support, even push back and provide constructive criticism and not just be an encouraging voice or a yes man, but it's still on the track of the pastor pursuing his joy. And there's other ways that are just getting in the way, like throwing your body in front of the bus or you know, let them do this with joy and not groaning. No healthy congregant wants to make his pastors groan. And that would be a good thing to, to work through that as you engage in the process of the local church with encouragement and with things that maybe push back or questions or challenges, you don't want your pastor to groan. And Hebrews gives you the reason for that. For that would be of no advantage to you. So to think as a congregant, I want advantage. I want gain. I myself want to be happy. I want to be blessed. I want joy in the Christian life. And so if part of that is to not make my pastor's work miserable if I don't <laughs> if I don't need to, if I can stay out of the way of him being able to do his work with joy, engaging in the process but not sinfully derailing his joy, that's going to be to my gain. Happy pastors lead to happy churches. And I think we all want to be part of happy churches in our best minds when our sin is not clouding our vision. And so that would be a a particular thing to say to congregants from Hebrews 13, 17. And I think that's so helpful. Obviously, we've touched a hundred different topics and there's so much more we could say, but we don't have uh, we don't have time uh, today to do that. But one of the things we always do is we end the podcast is talking about other resources. So I wanted to ask you specifically for some older and newer resources that you would kind of encourage people to pick up if they want to take the next step. Obviously, we're going to encourage them to get your new book with Crossway, Workers for Your Joy. Um, but what are some other resources that you'd recommend for folks if they're wanting to learn more as just to being an informed and engaged church member or those maybe even aspiring to pastoral ministry, where would you point them as next steps? Two pretty significant voices for me. I'm 42, born in 1980, millennial. So there's a couple boomer voices that were very significant for me in my formative season, Piper and Carson. John Piper's got an eldership seminar 
that's at the Desiring God website. It's just called Biblical Eldership. And I think it's uh, four hours or so of teaching. And he goes from scripture verse to scripture verse. It's It doesn't get into a lot of depth, but just at a very basic level, casts a vision from biblical verses for the nature of eldership in the New Testament. And so uh, it, it's not a book project. He didn't dot all the I's or cross all the T's there. But I have the guys in the class listen to that audio every year at the beginning of the class. And then one particular book by Don Carson may have shaped my thought about pastoral ministry as much as any. It's called The Cross and Christian Ministry, which he, he may have originally wrote it in 1992. But I think there's been a couple different you know, republications of it. It's kind of a classic in this generation. It is so well done. And he communicates such the heart of the office, you know, putting uh, le- local church leadership through the framework of the cross. And so it is a Christ-centered and cross-centered take on Christian leadership. And I'd, I'd commend it to anyone, not just local church officers. And then if you, if you like history a little bit and you uh, don't mind crying a little bit, then Don Carson's book about his dad called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor is a beautiful book. In, in, in fact, I was in Canada this fall. I was in Montreal. I went over to Ottawa. And they told me at the church just north of Ottawa in Gatineau, they said, oh, Tom Carson's grave is five minutes from here. This is Don Carson's dad, Tom, who was a, he spent his life uh, ministering the gospel in the very hard to reach province of Quebec. And he's, he's buried there in Gatineau, just north of Ottawa. And so I went over and got to see the grave and then got to see Dr. Carson a month later at ETS and said, I stood at your father's grave one month ago. So it, it's an amazing story of his father's faithfulness. He was not well known in his lifetime. He was not celebrated. He was not a celebrity pastor. And uh, he lived a faithful life. And the way Don reflects on it is very significant. Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. And then a, a book of a very different stripe from 2010 is Larry Osborne's book, Sticky Teams. I don't know if some of your, your listeners may have never heard of Larry Osborne. He was pastor in San Diego. He was one of the pioneers of video venue services, which I'm not a big fan of. <laughs> but his his book on team leadership called Sticky Teams just has a lot of Jethro-like wisdom. You know, think about Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, advising him with some good uh, hard knocks wisdom. And it, it, it very much reads like that for me. So I had the eldership guys read that for years, uh, that, that book called sticky teams. I could think of some others, but those are the the first few that come to mind. Yeah. For listener's sake, we'll make sure to link to all of those in the show notes so they can grab a copy of those. And then obviously your book as well, uh, comes out for crossway last year, workers for your joy. Um, but David, I just really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. I know you have a lot of different responsibilities from the church to the seminary and college, um, but I appreciate you taking the time to join us today here on the Digital Public Square. Thank you, brother. It's so nice to uh, to talk to you. You enjoyed having your writing at Desiring God and hope to do so again. So thanks for the partnership. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, connect with David as well as learn more about his new book, Workers for Your Joy, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. 
you can sign up at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week. Thank you.